Welcome to the Not Old Better Show, Smithsonian Associates Inside Science interview series on radio and podcast. Today's episode is part of our Inside Science series, and I'm Paul Vogelsang. Our guest today is Smithsonian Associate Dr. Michael Dine. Do very much to our guest today, Dr. Michael Dine. We know a great deal about the universe, its history, and its composition. We'll be talking to Dr. Michael Dine today about how we were able to get to this point in our universe's history. Michael Dine, Distinguished Professor of Physics at the University of California at Santa Cruz, explores that question as he cautions that there are still great mysteries driving much current research in theoretical and experimental physics and astrophysics. This is just a fascinating interview with Dr. Michael Dine. You will enjoy it. Dr. Michael Dine is author of the new book, This Way to the Universe. Very approachable, very fascinating book. And Dr. Dine will be presenting at Smithsonian Associates coming up. You'll find links in our show notes today or check out the Smithsonian Associates site, also linked in our show notes today. Advancing the study of the detailed history of the universe is the mission of the recently launched James Webb Space Telescope by NASA. And while we may know much about the current makeup of the universe, 95% of the energy is in forms we can roughly describe but can't precisely identify called the dark matter and the dark energy. Our guest today, Dr. Michael Dine, will help us understand all of this, surveying the universe during this extraordinary moment in time. Surveying the universe. It seems to be an extraordinary moment. On the one hand, we face daunting challenges, climate change, global pandemics, the threat of nuclear war. On the other hand, as a species, we have knowledge of the world and the universe around us beyond anything humans might have imagined even a century ago. No matter what happens, we have an unprecedented understanding of the natural world, of which our daily experiences sample only a tiny corner. Our lives play out on scales of centimeters, meters, kilometers, perhaps thousands of kilometers. But we know about nature on smaller scales, far, far smaller than the size of an atomic nucleus. We also know about the universe out to unimaginably large distances. Even more amazing is what we know, really know, about events billions of years ago. And we can make statements with near certainty about what will happen to the universe for the next few tens of billions of years. An extraordinary moment, indeed. Most of us have heard about faraway stars and galaxies, have some inkling that the universe emerged from the Big Bang billions of years ago. But, pre- but, pre- sorry, but precisely how large and how old is the universe? Where did it come from? What is its ultimate fate? How do we find answers to these questions? We are aware of atoms and maybe somewhat aware of things smaller than atoms. How can we possibly know about atomic nuclei that are far too small to see with the most powerful microscopes? How do these tiny things control the operation of the universe at large, as well as events like making a sandwich, using a credit card, or driving to work? From the largest scales to the smallest scales, our universe can seem impossibly mysterious. Can we do more than speculate about the architecture of the cosmos and its building materials? Can we construct experiments that will answer our questions about reality at such fantastic scales? 
That was our guest today, Dr. Michael Dine, reading from his new book, This Way to the Universe. It's just a wonderful book, very approachable, as I say. A great book for those of us in the Not Old Better Show audience that want to learn about science, but don't necessarily want to do all the math. So please join me in welcoming to the Not Old Better Show, Smithsonian Associates Inside Science Interview Series, Smithsonian Associate, Dr. Michael Dine, to discuss what the universe is made of. Dr. Michael Dine, welcome to the program. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, I'm glad to be talking to you too. I am in no way a science person. However, I love science at this point in my life and uh, after having a professional career and and now doing this for a living, I really enjoy talking about science and we're going to do that today. We're going to talk about your wonderful new book, This Way to the Universe. You've been generous to read from the book to us today and you're going to be appearing at the Smithsonian Associates program coming up. I wonder if we just start there. Just tell us briefly about your upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation and maybe how you'll use Zoom to engage our audience, because we're all on Zoom these days. Right. So uh, I've actually been starting to think about the program. Uh, The subject will be uh, what the universe is made of, or that'll be its principal subject. But I'll talk for about an hour uh, and then take questions. The uh, what I'll describe a little bit is sort of where we are and sort of as, as in this reading I just gave you, I will describe a bit about what are how how we've achieved this understanding of the universe at large, uh, and uh, and what the universe looks like. So this will take us through a little bit of what existed sort of pre-Einstein. So I'll explain how before Einstein, one really couldn't think about the universe as a whole. One didn't have the right tools. Newton's laws aren't adequate. And uh, I'll then explain what changed with Einstein. A little bit what Einstein did. Uh, and, uh, you know, this won't be with a lot of equations or anything. There will be some slides and pictures. Uh, uh, but, uh, but, um, but, I, but we'll, we'll, we'll understand a little bit what, how he changed the story and how he allowed us, opened up for us the possibility of asking questions about the history of the universe, its composition, and so on, and how these questions have turned into real experimental questions, things that we address with all instruments of, of, of many different types. Okay, so that's sort of what this talk will be about. Uh, we'll be a li- it'll be a little bit leisurely, I hope, I say I've started to prepare it a bit. Uh, and uh, and Zoom, I think, in certain ways, offers some advantages. It, uh, it sometimes allows a certain intimacy that we don't have with uh, in, in a large group setting. Uh, and uh, you know, I think you and I are both accustomed to, to Zoom or other modes of communication through this pandemic. Uh, I've taught classes this way. Uh, I've uh, conducted. I've sort of managed my. Uh, academic department and all kinds of other things in, in, in this way. So we've gotten pretty used to communicating this kind of style. Uh, and I think it'll be pretty effective. I'm sure it will. I know our audience is going to be eager to hear what you have to say. And I, I agree. I think Zoom does offer a connection perhaps that isn't there if we're kind of standing behind, uh, you know, a podium or a dais and we've got, right. you know, this big projection you know, we're having to make. I, I, I like that, too. My wife taught ballet during the lockdown via Zoom. And so uh-huh. <laughs> you can do anything, I think, if you can teach ballet. Right. Especially to little. Right. Well, as, uh, as as department chair, one of the first 
things, issues we confronted was, in fact, uh, doing physics labs <laughs> online. And there was a lot of unease among the faculty, rightly so, that students wouldn't have the opportunity to handle the equipment uh, and so on. And, of course, in, a, in the initial picture where this was just something temporary and short-lived, the idea was, well, let's just wait and have the students do things later. But fortunately, we, we did figure out ways to do things online, and it has been pretty effective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, well, good. Well, thank you for that. I appreciate it. And, and again, I really enjoyed the book, uh, This Way to the Universe. Our guest is author of the book, Michael Dine. Michael Dine will be appearing at Smithsonian Associates coming up. We'll put links so that our audience can find out more information about Michael Dine and his new book, This Way to the Universe. I think that's a, it's a great title, This Way to the Universe. It sounds, and, and the book certainly is very approachable. Where did the title come from as far as you're concerned? It, it's got to have some meaning for you too. Yes. Well, it, well, this grew out of conversations. Titles are uh, you know, of books, of papers, of, uh, are, are, are often a challenge and often you know, important in conveying what is the essence of some idea. And here I think the, what I was out to to capture uh, was the was the current state of our understanding of the universe and this is the, the universe here on very large scales and very small scales uh, in fact a little bit of this was motivated by an old video uh, called powers of 10 which appeared which I actually first saw years and years ago in the Smithsonian uh, and um, and what it does did that what that video did was relate our then understanding, so this is understanding sort of in the 1970s, of nature on very small and very large scales. And that understanding has really grown. And that was what I was sort of trying to convey in the book. And I do allude to this, uh, to this video there. Uh, and, and, the, and there are deep connections between the two. And that's sort of the origin of this way, of the, this way in, the, in the title. Uh, we are able we're able to connect things that we understand about nature at very small scales to things about nature at the largest scales. So when I say small scales, I mean tiny fractions of the size of an atomic nucleus. And when I say large scales, I mean uh, scales of galaxies and clusters of galaxies, scales of, of hundreds of millions and billions of light years. So, so those sorts of things are the things that we connect. And again, also I should say scales of time, uh, very short time scales and times that are time scales that are related to the age to the age of the universe. I have learned about you in my research for our for our interview today that you have this really interesting perspective on science and religion, and I think the two, science and religion, offer differing pictures sometimes, but I wonder if you just share your personal story briefly and how you, how you integrate questions of science and religion. That's an interesting question. And it's one I actually stay away from to some extent in the book because it has risks and perils, (laughs) Um, especially in our, in our current day and age where, Uh, where, where these subjects get so charged. Uh, But Mm -hmm. I, but my personal life is, is, is affected in interesting ways. Uh, I am married to a reform rabbi, uh, and uh, and I'm uh, sort of a subscriber to the reform movement in Judaism. I should say I actually grew up in a more traditional environment uh, and was surrounded, in fact, by by uh, people who you might describe as almost fundamentalist in their outlook. 
uh, and I and as and as a young person, that was troubling for me. I didn't understand how to uh, how to reconcile that with things I was learning about nature. About, for example, I remember being very shaken by my first exposures to uh, evolution and and uh, things like DNA and, and its workings, uh, and uh, and and that sort of evolved when I got. In, in my marriage and my up in my approach to my marriage where I was approached where I was where I encountered a more rationalist notion of religion where you know religion really was not allowed to be in conflict with the evidence of our senses uh, so that's been for me a, uh, a, a, a big a big factor in my life uh, so I certainly don't have any kind of fundamentalist view of religion. I do view religion as providing guidance for how we live. Uh, and, uh, you know, as an example, uh, you know, could talk about, and could talk about our current concerns about climate change and my own personal concerns about, about cl climate change. Uh, I think there is, uh, in some quarters, a view, some, some religious quarters, a view that God simply won't permit it. So why worry? Uh, and uh, I, I think I come more from a viewpoint that, if anything, what's remarkable is that we have the knowledge to understand the risks and the, and, and the, and the impending dangers and to think through how we might respond. And, I, and so my view of things is that's sort of where our moral responsibility lies. Uh, and I say it's not so, so it's not... Uh, so it's a very unfundamentalist view. It's a view of how religion informs the way we, the way we, the way we live our lives, the way we move, the way we function as a society. And the, and the Bible can perhaps serve as as guidance. The Torah, the, some of the religious books can can be this this guidance. Right. Right. And I and I like that. I, I don't see the Bible as being a science book. Right. And so there seems to be a, a natural division there, but. I wondered about this in my in my preparation for uh, our conversation today about this idea of Genesis one and the Big Bang theory, for example, and and I wanted to ask you, do those work together? Is there a, a an intersect a point of intersection there that we can uh, think about maybe one supporting the other? Does it even make sense to think about those two uh, as being together? Here's one where I would. So I would, again, I would sort of stress that what, you know, if I think about, say, the Bible, if I think about um, religious writing through the ages, uh, I certainly think it's of interest to see how people it, it, uh, dealt with the kind of questions that we confront, that human beings confront at various eras. So that, and in some sense, the, the story in Genesis has some of that element. It's certainly not a scientific story. Uh, it's you, you can dress it up and try and draw some parallels, but I think they're pretty much a stretch. Uh, what's sort of interesting is, you know, what to me is what were the the writers of the Bible, the, the storytellers who, who told these stories, what 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 was driving them, what motivated them. My own view is that they probably were largely trying to establish the God's bona fides, God's right to uh, an ability to uh, establish laws and, 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 uh, and those of the priestly caste and so on to implement the laws. 
Uh, and uh, and I say it's so I don't see it as a scientific story. It's clearly in, intrinsically interesting in that you know how did humans at various stages address these questions and and of course what's very remarkable now is that we have different sorts of answers. We have we we there are things we we can say uh, with great confidence. Uh, confidence in the scientific and mathematical sense. There are things, questions which are you know, part of the subject of the book, which, to which we don't know the answers. Uh, and even those questions are formulated with a precision, with a sort of sharpness that was not accessible to humans until very recently. So, um, so I say, it, I think the setting, you know, I see it as a sort of setting in which to ask, you know, what, how do people think about such questions? Uh, just as I think of the the sort of moral questions related to religion, uh, as uh, you know, I think the, the the things that our ancestors, you know, we're not you know we're not so much smarter in certain ways than our ancestors, and thinking about how they were learning how they dealt with some of these questions is of is of great interest and can perhaps be helpful. Hi, it's Paul. Do you love entertaining, informative, eclectic, insightful programs about culture, health, science, life, and everything Smithsonian? As part of our Smithsonian Associates interview series on radio and podcast, we're introducing you to the new Smithsonian Associates streaming series. Smithsonian, a nonprofit organization, is excited to present this new aspect of their 55 years as the world's largest museum-based educational program. Join us from the comfort of your home as we periodically interview Smithsonian Associate guest speakers. Our audience here on radio and podcast can explore our website for more information, links, and details at notold-better.com. Thanks, everybody. We are with Dr. Michael Dine. Dr. Michael Dine will be appearing at the Smithsonian Associates Program as part of our Science Literacy Series. Dr. Michael Dine has written the, the really wonderful new book titled This Way to the Universe. We're talking about that and more today with Dr. Dine. And let's let's shift for a second and talk a little bit about the book. And I think our audience is, is just going to soak this up. They're, they're just going to be very interested because I think science is on our minds today, whether it is related to climate change or any one of a number of other things. And you write so um, you, you write so brilliantly on this on this this subject of particle theory, but maybe tell our audience uh, about particle theory and what it means and uh, give us a sense as to uh, how it applies uh, in our lives. Yeah. Okay. So it's it's a it's a it's an excellent question and one which I've sort of struggled with you know in the sort of you know when you meet meet someone new or you're at a party or something you're introduced and you say I do particle theory well what in the world is that okay so uh, and some of the that terminology is in some sense historical and as a result somewhat obscure so uh, it grows out of the program of, of, a, of a program in experimental physics in the decades. Uh, surrounding or just after the Second World War, when people were building large particle accelerators, accelerators, machines that would give large energies to particles, to protons, to neutrons, to electrons, and collide them with other particles. And what they did is they would do these experiments and sort of look at what came out. Uh, and so so because they were studying particles, this became known as particle physics. But what they were really after and what has emerged uh, 
in that subsequent 80 years or so is an understanding of the laws of nature. So uh, uncovering them and uh, testing them and so on. So, so, so this is kind of a framework uh, which is explained, I hope, a little bit in the book about you know, in which to un- uncover laws of nature. So even the very notion of laws of nature is not something that all of us think about every day. Uh, and so I try and explain a little bit of that, going back especially to Newton, who really, in some sense, established what we think of as a notion of, of laws of nature. Uh, and, and what's remarkable is that we found through this study of particles, of, of these particles of protons, neutrons, electrons, things that uh, you get when you collide them together, uh, we found we've uncovered uh, l- new laws, laws which we did not, which we did not know, and these laws are operative on many scales. So once once you know, say, the laws of nuclear physics, you can go look at things like stars, and you can understand how stars uh, how stars behave, what's going on, what how what they burn. What, and this is not something that people could do. Uh, say, up until about the 1930s. Uh, and there's much more that we understand now beyond that. So that's really what this connection is and why the this way, say, in the title that I mentioned, uh, comes from. What's, what's sort of the path to try and understand the, the universe on all these different, on all these different scales, and in particular on, on, on these very large scales, the scales of cosmology. And so I guess the Kind of the follow-up is, is why is the study of particle theory and fundamental physics important to us? Well, an excellent question. Uh, I, I think it, it's a question of to what, you know, I think it's interesting to try and understand what our place is in the universe and, you know, what the universe is, is like uh, on, 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 his, on sort of cosmological timescales. I listened to a talk recently by my astronomy colleague, Sandy Faber, Sandra Faber, uh, on the question sort of of the, of the Earth's future. So she's, she and another uh, a group have put together a group of people who are thinking about issues uh, involving things like climate change, but ultimately things like long-term survivability on, on Earth. And, uh, and the, uh, the, a perspective of coming at this with a perspective of the universe at large, how the history of the universe, the future of the universe, sort of gives a setting in which to address some of these questions. It's not essential to, you know, it's not going to provide the technology which allows us to, uh, which makes electric cars efficient, but it is, but it does help us understand what our targets are, what what it means to survive. What, what on what time scales we need to think, uh, and I was quite struck in her remarks by this. So, uh, so I think there is to having some perspective on the universe at large uh, allows us also some perspective to think about questions which are of great human import, and questions which we we are as, as a society or uh, both in this country but in the world at large are struggling mm-hmm. with. I like that helps us to understand other things. I think that's that's important. Dr. Michael Dine, I just have one final question for you. I know you're, you're very busy and we sure, we sure appreciate your time and, and your generous reading. And, and in your reading, you cite what we know, what we really know. And so I want to ask you the kind of the big question, one that 
you know, certainly we see often it's maybe answered by philosophers or religion differently. But the question is, why is there something rather than nothing? Yeah. So this is uh, a uh, a question which in um, in the in the context of cosmology takes on a precise sharp meaning. So um, you could ask. So one of the things that we know uh, the laws of nature is that there, in addition to matter, there's something called antimatter. So for every kind of particle we know, there's an antiparticle. So for example, for the electron, there's an antiparticle, which was discovered in the 1930s, called the positron. Okay? And then there are great stories connected with, with this, which I relate in, in the book. Uh, but this was the, sort of the beginning of this kind of antimatter story. So there's also a particle called the antiproton, which is the antiparticle of the proton. And I should say antimatter meets matter um, that can annihilate, that can destroy each other, leaving, for example, just just particles of light, photons. Um, and uh, uh, But we live in a universe uh, sort of rather obviously, which consists mostly of matter and not of antimatter. And the laws of nature, on the other hand, are almost the same for matter and antimatter. So how did that happen? How do we get just matter and not antimatter? And this is a question, as a scientific question, was first formulated by Andrei Sakharov, a famous Soviet dissident, uh, a scientist who himself with an interesting history. He was uh, responsible for the development of the Soviet uh, thermonuclear uh, weapon, in fact hydrogen bomb. Uh, but he also uh, thought hard about this question and, and set out some criteria uh, in which one might be able to understand why the universe contains as much matter as it does, why it contains a little bit more matter than antimatter. I say a little bit more because at very early times when the universe was very hot, very close to the Big Bang, uh, the little there was a lot of there were lots of protons and antiprotons. There were lots of electrons and anti-electrons, and just a slight excess of matter over antimatter. And how did that happen? Where did that come from? So I say he formulated these uh, this this question in a sharp way, uh, and uh, I should say he did this after the discovery of a slight difference in the behavior of particles and antiparticles. He realized that that was a critical ingredient to understanding this. So at this point, we actually have uh, a lot of nice theories about how this comes about. Uh, and de de deciding which is correct uh, is an experimental question, which is hard, which is hard to sort of figure out which are the experiments which would tell you which of these various ideas we have are correct. And in the book, I describe some of these ideas and some of the ways you might, some of the strategies one might have to, to decide which is correct, which, is, which accounts for why there is something rather than not. But I say even the fact that the question is a sharp meaning, like you, it translates into a number, there's a number which is about a part in 10 to the 10, uh, which, uh, which one's trying to explain. That's the something. Dr. Michael Dine, I appreciate uh, the time with you and all of this information, the presentation coming up at Smithsonian Associates uh, titled This Way to the Universe. That's the title of your new book. Uh, guest has been Michael Dine. 
a theoretical physicist's journey to the edge of reality. And we've talked about a whole bunch of great stuff today. I know your presentation at Smithsonian Associates will go into more detail. We look forward to that. But uh, thanks for your time today, Dr. Dine. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you. You too. Thank you for having me. And I enjoyed this a lot. Thank you. Me too. My thanks to Dr. Michael Dine, author of the new book, This Way to the Universe. Michael Dine will be presenting at the Smithsonian Associates coming up, and you'll find links in our show notes today, or check out the Smithsonian Associates website, also linked in our show notes today. My thanks to the Smithsonian team for all they do to support the show. My thanks to you, my wonderful Not Old Better Show audience on radio and podcast. Please be well, be safe. And let's eliminate assault rifles, keeping our grandchildren and children safe everywhere, but especially in school. Thanks, everybody. And we will see one another next week.